How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study today, we will take some time to make sure we're in fellowship. Scripture teaches that a believer is to walk by means of God the Holy Spirit. But when we sin, we default to walking according to the flesh. The only way to recover is to reboot, and that means to confess our sins, which simply means to admit or acknowledge our sins to God the Father. And at the instant that we do, we are forgiven of those sins and cleansed of all unrighteousness, restored to fellowship so that we can resume our forward momentum in the Christian life. So let's bow our heads together for a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Scripture says that it is in your light that we see light. Only when we come to your word are we exposing our thinking, uh, which is so often characterized by the darkness of the cosmic system, to the exposure of the light of your word. Father, we pray that we might be responsive as God the Holy Spirit shines the light of your word upon our thinking, that we may come to understand how we so often fail to appropriate and to apply divine viewpoint principles and promises in our lives, and that we may learn to walk by faith and not by sight. Father, we pray that as we study today that God the Holy Spirit will make these things clear to us and we'll be able to apply them on a regular basis in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in a study of 1 Thessalonians, but for the time being, we are doing a topical series related to the faith rest life, claiming promises, learning how to uh, walk by means of the truth of Scripture, part of the basic fundamentals of the Christian life. And so today we're going to continue what we've covered before. I want to, as always, anchor this back to the text in our series. In 1 Thessalonians uh, 1.8, Paul praises the Thessalonians because their faith toward God has gone out. That is, there's a reputation that has spread among the provinces of ancient Greece and Achaia, as well as Macedonia, and people heard about how the Thessalonians were trusting in God, a walk by faith and not by sight. As we've studied in the past, the basic elements of the faith rest drill are to, first of all, claim a promise, which simply means that we are holding God to his word. We are reminding him, as it were, of a promise that he has made in Scripture, and that is focusing our attention in the midst of some sort of crisis, some sort of adversity upon something God has said in his word. As we claim that promise, what we do is we think through that promise. We rehearse it in our mind. It's a good idea also when we have the time. Sometimes we're out driving or we're at work or different circumstances and situations in life, but when we get the opportunity, we should take the time to sit down and not just claim the promise, not just recite the promise, but go to the scripture where the promise is located and read the surrounding context as we think through the basic rationale that is embedded within the promise. Every promise is expressing thoughts and a reason, a rationale base behind that that promise. And so we're thinking through that. One of the promises that we are looking at initially is in Isaiah 40, 31. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. And we've been focusing on that word wait, and that it means more than just sitting down, twiddling our thumbs. It's not just a time word, but it is a word that... Uh, is loaded with a connotation of hope, uh, a confidence, a future expectation. It's not just the idea of, of, uh, of holding time. 
it's a it's an idea of of waiting hopefully expectantly anticipating what god is going to do and so as we think about hope this is a concept that is that we find throughout scripture and i suggested last time that one of the ways in which you can study through uh, a passage as you're meditating on it is to look at the key words that you have in a passage and one of the key words here is of course waiting for the lord you can look that word up in a concordance if you use something like a strong's concordance or there's a new, the new international version has a concordance that's built on the same, uh, same basic, uh, mode of operation or mechanics. New American Standard has a concordance on the same way in that, that is you look at the English word and it will, uh, uh, give you a list of all the verses that have that English word in it. And then the right column will have a number. And I forget which is which now, but but one an italicized number probably refers to the n- number for the Hebrew word in the in the dictionary at the back of the concordance, and a regular number uh, has uh, a reference to the Greek word. And so you can look at that number, turn to the back of the concordance, and it will give you the Greek word. Well, if you look at at a list, for example, you look up weight, and you have a list of of maybe forty or fifty verses that have weight, and if you look at the right column, it may have different Hebrew words that are translated weight. Well, if you look at all the verses that have the same number, then those are all the verses that have this, that are using that same word that's used here in uh, Isaiah 40:31. And then you can read those other verses. You'll find some other promises that support the promise that's here that restate the same principle. But it also gives you some other ideas of uh, how God supports us when he doesn't immediately answer our our prayers. And we did a little bit of that by looking at, at corollary passages uh, last time, and we saw the emphasis on hope, that it's a confident expectation or, of, of something. And so just by way of a little bit of review, one of the things we said about hope is that it's not just sort of this hope that somehow, some way, the universe is going to come together and things will work out as if we live in a fatalistic universe. It's not a faith in faith or just just a mindless hope that yeah, just believe. Believe what? Uh, but that's what people say. Just believe. And they never talk about what you believe in. Same, they do the same thing with hope. So it's not a hope that somehow, some way, things will just work out, but the hope that a Christian has is because God is in control. And this takes us to the promise in Romans 8.28, that we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. And this reminds us that God is in control. doesn't say that all things are good. There are many things that bring suffering into our life, that bring adversity into our life for many different reasons, which we'll look at a little later in this lesson. But we know that God uses these things to produce that which is good eventually. And that outcome may come in our lifetime, and it may not come until the end times, until God brings judgment upon the earth, and maybe not even until the great white throne judgment. But all things work together for good. And then it says, to those who love God. Now, this is not particularly a special promise to those who are uh, mature enough to have a mature love for God. As as we go on, it's defined as those who are called according to his purpose. So those who love God are further defined uh, appositionally in the next clause as those who are the called according to his purpose. That's every believer. Every believer, whether you're a baby believer, whether you're a mature believer, whether you're a carnal believer, whether you're a spiritual believer, every believer is called according to the purpose of God. And every believer loves God. I mean, you look at, a, at an infant, you look at, your, uh, at a baby that's, that's uh, a year and a half old, they have a year and a half old's capacity for love. It's not great. It's based on the fact that they love you because you feed them, but... We love God because he saved us, and that's a starting point. It's a, 
a spiritual infant's love. It's it's not a lot. It's not what it's going to be when we're a mature believer. It's not based on the breadth of depth of knowledge that we'll have later on. But every believer uh, should love God to some degree according to his growth at that particular time in his life. Uh, if you come along and say, well, this only applies to believers who've reached a certain level, then that's like that's like minimizing uh, the love that a three-year-old expresses to their parents when they say to daddy, I love you, daddy, or I love you, mommy. You, you don't want to say, well, no, you don't. You're not old enough yet to really love me. You don't really understand what love means. Uh, you don't know uh, what what's involved in love. Wait until you're 25 or 30 or maybe 40, and then, then we'll talk about whether or not you really love me. Uh, so this is, I think, a mistake in, in interpretation of the passage because Paul is basically thinking any believer at any point loves God to, to the degree that is appropriate to his maturity, uh, maturity level. So we take comfort from this verse that God is in charge. That doesn't mean God overrides volition of individuals, but that God works even in the chaos of, of fallen creation to bring about his, his plan. It tells us that we're called according to his purpose. This tells us that God has a pre-existing plan. He has an intent to history. He oversees the direction of our life. And this means that, that creation and the events of history are not the random chaotic events they might appear to be, but that they ultimately will be blended together into the outworking of God's plan. It tells us that the Creator is not just an impersonal force, but that the Creator has pre-existing thought, which brings about this plan, that as a result of his pre-existing thought, he has instituted a plan. In history, there's meaning, there's purpose, and that uh, in terms of being a, a creature of God, we imitate that, since the Bible says we're created in his image and likeness. as Just as God makes plans, we make plans, even though ours are often tentative, and because our plans are not based on omniscience, we often have to change our plans due to varying circumstances. But because God is omniscient and omnipotent, he knows all things, so he can have a perfect plan. He's omnipotent, which means he is able to bring about his plan as he intends it. So it gives us great confidence because we can say in the midst of chaos that we know that all things work together for good. Now, we know that it's not the things that are impersonally working things out, but it's God. Some, some few manuscripts... Uh, put God as the subject of the verb and have it written. Uh, we know that God causes all things to work together for good, but that's really in a only in two or three manuscripts that are minor manuscripts. Uh, but obviously, a scribe would have in, inserted that for clarity, thinking, "Oh, I'm going to." make this passage a little more clear for the next person. It, uh, this happened in, in uh, the way Scripture was copied many times. Some some scribe at some point would write something in the margin or make a note uh, just for his own personal clarification. Then 200 years later, somebody copied it and copied the note into the text. And then from that point on, uh, that's how different words are, uh, were inserted in the text and how changes took place sometimes. And, of course, working through that is all part of textual criticism. So you can go in, if you just have one or two manuscripts that have a, a variation uh, or a variant in the, in the wording, then usually that's something like that happened. But the best manuscripts, the majority text, says we know all things work together uh, for good. Now, this is just the opposite of the kind of thinking that the world demonstrates. The world system thinks that everything runs either according to uh, sort of this impersonal plan of the universe, uh, a, a view we call fatalism, that somehow there is... Uh, some determinism that is within the very warp and woof of, of, of 
of creation, and so things just go forward no matter what. And they and many people have sort of this a blind or mindless trust in in this impersonal universe. Then on the other extreme, you have people who believe that everything is just purely random and everything is based on pure chance. There's no meaning. There's no purpose. There's no definition other than what we assign to events, that events really have no meaning and purpose in and of themselves. It's just that that as human beings, we want to, we, we like order, we like purpose, so we assign meaning and purpose to things when there really isn't any uh, purpose to that. Those are uh, two of the extremes that you find in cosmic thinking. But the unbeliever really can't say that all things work together for good because he doesn't have a thought system that allows him to come to those conclusions. Now, we all know that there are many unbelievers who ha- who want to believe that, but it's this this sort of faith in, a, in an impersonal deterministic universe that they have that, that gives them hope when they have no reason for hope. And, and if we're talking with people, maybe we can ask the question, well, why do you feel like things are going to work out? Uh, what's your basis for that? If, if uh, you believe we live in a random universe governed by evolution, how can you have optimism if the basic mechanic uh, of history is the survival of the fittest. It seems like there's this constant struggle going on, and those that are left less fit are destroyed and die, so that those who are more powerful can can succeed. How do you? How can you justify even having the concept of good versus evil in a random universe where there's no ultimate morality? So there are different ways. And we can address this. There's also the un, un, the approach of unbelievers who just say the same thing over and over again, sort of like uh, uh, self-hypnosis in uh, Hinduism. You have a mantra, and it's just, just a matter of convincing yourself of something, uh, even though there's no real basis for it. But for the Christian, we look at this, and we know that we have a personal God, He's a God of love. He's a God of omniscience. And we're just thinking through uh, the essence of God. And it tells us that he is able to bring about his plans and purposes uh, in human, human history. This is the same kind of thinking that underlies the promise of Isaiah 40:31 that those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall exchange their strength, as we've seen in the study of that word, their their human finite strength for God's strength. Now, as we continue in our study of Isaiah 40, we're going to take some time to look at um, at the background to this to this chapter and to this verse. It's very important to understand that this is a uh, section of Isaiah that brings comfort to the Jewish people the original recipients of Isaiah's prophecies because they are they are about to go through a time of incredible national suffering these warnings have been given by Isaiah in various prophecies in the first 39 chapters in fact chapter 38 and 39 uh, cover the period of the Assyrian invasion. Actually, this started back in 36, and there are a lot of parallels between uh, this section and the chapters in 2 Kings uh, chapters 12 through 19. So there's the warning from Isaiah that that God has brought this national calamity uh, upon Israel. Uh, The northern kingdom has been defeated by the Assyrians and has gone out under the fifth cycle of discipline. And the southern kingdom has been defeated, and there has been this siege of Jerusalem uh, while Hezekiah uh, is king until God intervened as a result of Hezekiah's prayer and turning to God, representing the nation as a whole, turning to God and uh, seeking his uh, his his deliverance during this time of oppression. So there's a shift that takes place between chapter 39 and chapter 40, and the 
the last section of Isaiah, chapters 40 through 66, has quite a different tone than the first chapters. The, the, the first section deals with judgment. The second half deals with hope, and that that hope is based upon uh, God's plan, ultimately his plan of salvation through the Messiah. And so there's this focus there that even though there is going to be discipline and suffering, that's not the end game. The end game will be a complete restoration of the Jewish people to their homeland and that God will ultimately fulfill all the promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so the background to the promise of Isaiah 40:31 is the suffering that they will see in the interim period. So this is a good place to address the doctrine of suffering, and there are ten reasons given in Scripture for why we suffer. And so we're going to look at each one of these. The first reason we suffer, the reason everybody suffers, is because we just live in a fallen world. We live in a world that has been corrupted because of Adam's sin. Uh, Adam, it's Adam's responsibility when Adam chose to disobey God in the Garden of Eden and he ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It plunged the entire human race into sin. So we are all corrupt as a result of sin. We're all guilty of Adam's sin. And this means we're all born corrupt. So every human being is corrupted by sin. We have a sin nature, and we are all spiritually dead. But beyond that, the universe has been corrupted. The animal kingdom has been corrupted. Uh, Everything has been impacted by sin, and so everything is running down uh, towards, uh, towards corruption. And because we live in a fallen world, bad things are going to happen. And have happened. Everything from the horrors of warfare to hunger, famine, child abuse, personal disasters related to relationships such as divorce, uh, death, uh, financial loss, criminality, uh, weather disasters, uh, economic disasters, all of these things are the result of Adam's sin. When Adam fell, it impacted everything. So we live in an imperfect world, and we live in an imperfect world with imperfect people. In Genesis 2.17, God told Adam that in the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And so there was a certainty there that from that instant there was a change. And in Genesis chapter 3, when God walked in the garden, came to walk in the garden with Adam and Eve, after they had eaten of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we see that there was an immediate change, that, that when God came on the scene, they ran and hid because they were afraid. That was never the way it was before, and they tried to solve their problem of their nakedness because they suddenly became aware of their nakedness and their vulnerability and they tried to solve the problem by covering things up uh, with garments they made from fig leaves. They tried to camouflage the problem. And this has been true of mankind ever since is we deny the responsibility for sin. This is the first thing that Adam did. He really blamed God. He said, well, it's the woman you gave me, God. It's, in other words, first her fault, second your fault. That's why we're, we're in this mess. And ever since then, the human race has sought to deny that the problem is really us. The problem is our own sin nature. And so uh, everything is a result of Adam's sin. So it's not because of God. Many people, when they face disasters, especially disasters of a uh, of a of an enormous scale, such as the Holocaust, that we want to uh, blame God. But it happens in disasters of a small scale. You suffer a major financial loss. You suffer the loss of a loved one. We blame God. Why did you do this? We focus on the loss rather than on the fact that we had. The, the blessing prior to the loss. We, we blame the loss on God, and we say, well, why does God let these things happen? Well, God lets these things happen because he allows freedom. And when he allows freedom of choice, then when people choose to do wrong things, then there are going to be bad consequences. So in order to allow freedom, God also has to allow 
the consequences from the misuse or abuse of that freedom. What happens when bad things happen is people often respond by being bitter, angry with God, instead of recognizing that the flaw is in Adam's sin, and we live in a fallen uh, fallen world. So God allows these things to happen because he allows individual human volition and responsibility to uh, to work itself out. Now, it's interesting because often we'll hear from the unbeliever that, that if God is... If God is good, how could he allow these things to happen? And the unbeliever is using terminology such as good and evil to express his objection to God when he really doesn't have a right to that terminology. If, if, operating, if you're operating on the, the thought system of the pagan unbeliever that is built off of evolutionary concepts where there's no personality overriding anything, everything is from uh, the position of arbitrary chance operating in the universe, then they don't have any basis for talking about what's good or what's bad. In fact, according to uh, evolutionary theory, the basic mechanic of progress is the survival of the fittest. So survival means something survives and something else is destroyed, and it is therefore on the basis of destruction and violence and suffering that the human race or that uh, the evolution among all of the different uh, genus, uh, genus and species, that that takes place as a result of, of suffering. So in, if you're consistent in an evolutionary framework, suffering is important because that's part of the means of advance. But they want to twist things and say, well, how can you believe in a good God who allows suffering, they don't have a right to even think in those categories. They're assuming the categories of the Bible in order to even express their thought of good and evil uh, because they're living in a universe of their own construction that is built on random chance. And in a random universe, there's no you can't make an ultimate distinction between good and uh, good and evil. So our starting point is to recognize that bad things are going to happen because we live in a fallen world that is uh, corrupted by sin. The second reason that the Bible gives for why we suffer is because of individual volitional responsibility. We make bad decisions, and because we make bad decisions, we're going to suffer. Now, we make bad decisions for two reasons. We make bad decisions, first of all, because we are headstrong, stubborn, and we disobey God. We are willfully disobedient, and we make willful, willful bad decisions, and as a result, there are consequences to that. Adam made a bad decision willfully disobeyed God, and that brought about certain negative consequences in his own life, not to mention all of the other things that his bad decision uh, impacted, but it had impact on his own life. So he felt the negative consequences because of his intentional disobedience to God. But sometimes we make bad decisions because we have insufficient information. Sometimes we look at all the data in our lives and we make a what we think is a good decision, but because we didn't get all the data we should have, we didn't ask all the questions we should have, we end up making a bad, what turns out to be a bad decision, and we reap the consequences of that bad decision. Whether we knew everything or not, whether our intentions were good or not, uh, we still made a bad decision. Uh, my mother always told me that the road to hell was paved with good intentions. So even though our intentions might have been good, they can lead to bad decisions. And so for one reason or another, we become responsible for the decisions that we made. We made them. And this is indicated in the statement in Galatians 6, 7, whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. In other words, you engage in planting seeds of bad, bad decisions, and over time, 
you are going to reap the consequences of those bad decisions. The trouble is with bad decisions is sometimes we may not see those consequences for 5, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. We may make bad decisions when we're a teenager and we just don't know any better, and yet we're going to reap consequences from that over the next 40 or 50 years. We have no concept of that when we're, when we're young. So this impacts us in many different ways, and we have to take ownership and responsibility for the fact that we have made bad decisions, and so we're going to uh, reap certain consequences. Now, the third area of suffer, suffering takes the natural consequences the bad, from our bad decisions to, a, in, to an intensified level. This is a situation where, where, where the negative consequences may be serious, and then God says, but that's not quite enough. You really need to learn your lesson, so there are going to be additional consequences on top of just the, uh, the, the, the negative consequences. There are going to be additional uh, circumstances that are going to bring an intensification so that you'll learn the lesson. Uh, God's work in bringing discipline into our lives in terms of, of uh, a punitive discipline is indicated in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 4 through uh, 8. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 4 through 8. I have 6 through 8 up on the, up on the screen because that's the core of the passage. But let me begin with verse 4. Verse 4 says, You have not resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. We think we're struggling against sin, but the writer of Hebrews says you're really just putting up sort of a halfway effort unless you've resisted to the point of shedding blood. In other words, unless you have come to the point of maybe even a possibility of death in your own life as you fight against sin, you haven't really taken it as seriously as you should. And the truth there uh, hurts because too often we we just put up a mild resistance and then we cave in very easily. And he goes on to remind us of a challenge in the scripture in verse 5. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. This is from the scripture addressing us as children of God. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. Now, that's a very interesting statement. First of all, we are to recognize when we are being disciplined by God. It's more than just the natural consequences of our bad decisions. And we're not to treat it lightly or with a uh, lack of respect. On the one hand, that would be minimizing the significance of the discipline. On the other hand, we're not to faint when we're approved by him. When God lowers the boom in divine discipline, uh, it may be a temptation to uh, just give up. It may be a temptation to cave in to thoughts of suicide and actions of suicide, that maybe what is perceived as God's discipline is awfully harsh and we aren't to faint, we aren't to cave in because God has given us the tools needed in order to handle even the adversity that comes as a result of divine discipline. Because it, in one sense, in one sense, whatever the adversity is that we face in life, whether it's the result of our bad decisions, whether it's the result of someone else's bad decisions, whether it's the result of, of uh, divine discipline, the solutions to facing any adversity are the same. Basically, if we sinned, we need to confess our sin and get back in fellowship. Then we have to walk by the Holy Spirit. We claim promises. We orient our life to grace and to doctrine. And we orient to God's plan for our lives in terms of our personal sense of destiny. We have personal love for God the Father. We show love for all mankind. We are occupied with Christ, and we have 
that we share the happiness of Christ. Those are the ten spiritual skills that I've talked about uh, so many times, and we'll review some more as we go through this. That's the core. So we, whether the suffering is our own fault, whether suffering is somebody else's fault, the solutions are always the same, and we can turn the cursing into blessing by starting to respond biblically to those particular problems. This is what the writer of Hebrews is emphasizing in verse 5. Then he goes on to remind us of the core principle behind the divine discipline. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Now, whom does God love? He loves everyone who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, everyone who is part of his family. Those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. That means that he brings discipline in their life, both from the vantage point of of punishment, but also in order to teach and instruct us. The idea of discipline often has that idea of training us in a particular path of life. He goes on to define this in context here as the negative discipline. He scourges every son whom he receives. So if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, God is going to uh, bring you to a whipping. And that is a metaphor, but it's harsh. And it describes the fact that God's discipline at times may seem extremely severe, but it is motivated by his love and care for each of his children. And then uh, we go on to read in verse 7, it is for discipline that you endure. It's not pleasant to go through that suffering. We may, in fact, uh, want to quit. We may want to faint, uh, as he stated it in verse 5. But here we're told that instead of fainting, we are to endure. We are to hang in there. And the principles of endurance are the same whether we're uh, enduring suffering brought about by our own bad decisions or from the circumstances of someone else. So it is for discipline that we endure. God deals with you. God deals with each of us as with sons. And then he asks the rhetorical question, For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Now, there are many today, but in in reality, the norm is that a father should discipline his children because he loves his children. And then in verse 8, he writes, But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. In other words, if you're not a believer, God's not going to discipline you. The reality is, if you're a believer then God will bring discipline into your life and intensify the consequences. Now, let's look at an Old Testament example of how this took place. I want you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 12. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12 uh, in the Old Testament, and this describes uh, one of the most detailed, uh, gives us one of the most detailed analyses of divine discipline in the Old Testament. It's one of the great sins of the Old Testament that started in Second Samuel chapter 11 when David, the king of Israel, the great king of Israel, succumbed to a great temptation. Uh, he, instead of going out uh, to battle with his army, which was his responsibility, so he starts off being at the wrong place, uh, because of his failure in his own personal responsibility. So that puts him in a position of weakness to begin with. And it puts him in a position where he uh, is going to be tempted because he sees a woman who is uh, bathing. The water was often collected on the roofs of the houses and a woman would, uh, you would go up there and bathe, and she's going up there in broad daylight so that she's visible, so there's some indication that there may be some culpability on her part. Her part, her name is Bathsheba, and David is going to invite her to the palace. There, He's going to seduce her, and then she's going to end up becoming pregnant. Well, David decides, like every great leader who succumbs to sexual lust, that it's time to have a little conspiratorial cover-up. And so he calls in his uh, his general, Joab, who is also a, a relative, and he says, you need to cover, cover me on this. 
And what we're going to do is we're going to put Uriah up front. Uh, he had tried some other things. Uriah wouldn't cooperate. So now he's got to take, he, I'm cutting the story down. He, um, he decides that he's going to have to take Uriah out because he won't come home and, and have relations with his wife to cover up the sin. And so he ends up having Joab put, uh, put Uriah at the forefront of the battle, the hottest part of the battle when they attacked, uh, attacked at, uh, 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 Rabbah, which is modern uh, Amman, Jordan. And so uh, the result of this is that uh, Uriah is killed in battle, and David thinks he's able to cover all of this up. And so he's guilty of adultery. He's guilty of uh, conspiracy. He's guilty of murder. And as a result of that, God is going to bring a judgment. He's not going to let his king... Uh, who's over his people, get away with this. And so the Lord sends a prophet to David in chapter 12, a prophet named Nathan. And Nathan comes to David in a somewhat subtle way, and he's going to give David a a little parable to see uh, how David would respond to the injustice in the parable. He's really setting David up, and David walks right into the trap. He starts off at the beginning of chapter 12 with this little parable. It talks about two men. One's rich, the other's poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds. The poor man uh, just had one small ewe lamb, which he cared for very much, nourished and took care of. And it was part of his household, grew up with his children, would eat of his bread, drink of his cup, lie in his bosom. And it was like a daughter to him. And so a traveler came to the rich man, and the rich man is supposed to open up his house, show hospitality to this uh, traveler, this stranger, but he's stingy, he's tight, he doesn't want to give of anything that he has, even though he has great wealth, and so he decides that that the, that he's just going to steal this lamb from uh, from his neighbor, the poor man. And so he takes the poor man's lamb and kills it, prepares it for the, the stranger that's visiting him. And at this point, David reacts to the injustice of the whole situation. Uh, the text says his anger burned greatly against him, and David just absolutely lost it at this point. And he, uh, and he exclaims to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who's done this deserves to die. And uh, here's what we have in, um, that should be Second Samuel 12, 5 and 6. David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. He said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who's done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold the lamb. So David, in his reaction to the great injustice in the parable, is going to articulate his own punishment, that there should be a fourfold discipline. Now, David is guilty of committing capital crime. Under the Mosaic Law, adultery was punishable by death, and murder was to be punished by death. But God, in his grace, now this doesn't involve the courts at all, so the courts don't act as God, so they are to act under the principles laid down in Scripture, unless there are some compelling reasons for mercy. But this is where God is commuting the sentence for David, because God is the highest authority in the universe, has the right and the authority to do that. He's going to commute David's sentence of capital punishment, but he's not going to commute the punishment. David is still going to be punished, and it's going to be a fourfold punishment. And this then is explained by Nathan in verses 11 and 12. That says, The Lord God, behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. So this is the intensification of the discipline, and it's going to come from within David's own family. And God goes on to say, And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. So David is going to be put in the place of Uriah, where his wives are taken by someone else. In this case, it will be, part of that will occur with his own son, Absalom. 
God says, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the Son. And so there's going to be a fourfold restitution or fourfold discipline. First of all, the baby is going to die. The infant that is the result of the union there between David and Bathsheba is going to die after the infant is born. So that's the first thing. The result of their union is going to to die. So death comes uh, to the infant. Death comes into David's life. And this brought about great grief for David. And we read about this in the remainder of Second Samuel 12, how David mourned, how he grieved, how he fasted, how he pleaded with God for the life of the infant. But then the infant died, and at that point David uh, resolved himself to God's plan. After um, One thing we should note is that after Nathan confronted David with his sin, and after Nathan uh, con- uh, confronted David with his punishment, David's response was that he confessed his sin. In verse 13 of chapter 12, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And and Nathan said to David, The Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. So this is when God commutes David's uh, sentence of capital punishment. So David receives grace, but David is restored to fellowship with the Lord which enables him to utilize the provisions that God gave him through the faith rest drill and through the word of God to handle the intensification of suffering that would come in the discipline. So there's, there's the, first of all, the natural consequences of the sin, but then God is intensifying this fourfold in David's, in David's life. So the first, uh, the first, uh, payment is the death of the baby. The second consequence is that day, and this took place over time. This is some years later that that this takes place. David's son Amnon rapes his sister Tamar. This is described in Second Samuel chapter thirteen, and we get the whole detailed story. Amnon is a half brother. Uh, Tamar is a full sister to Absalom, and she and Absalom are very close siblings. And Amnon just is consumed by sexual lust for his sister, sets up a little trap, invites her over to take care of him because he's, he's faking it, saying that he's sick, and then he ends up raping her. So this is the second payment. David's family is visited by this sexual sin that is comparable to the sin that uh, his sin with Bathsheba. In fact, some had suggested that he took advantage of his position as king and the initial liaison with Bathsheba might have been bordered on rape. Uh, this text, on the basis of the text, we can't prove or disprove that. The third level of a punishment is that his beloved son, his favorite son, Absalom, who is the crown prince, institutes a rebellion. I mean, uh, kills, kills Amnon. Uh, in 2 Samuel 13, 28 to 29, uh, kills Amnon. So that's the third punishment. And then fourth, later Absalom will revolt, lead a revolt against David, and he will also take David's wives from David's harem, and he will uh, sleep with them. And this was a sign that he has taken over as king and exercising his uh, 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 kingly authority over over the nation as he takes David's wife. So that fulfills the uh, prophecy of his judgment that was stated by God. So there's a fourfold restitution that's given based on David's own mouth. So that's that's the third way in which we ha- are we go through suffering is the divine discipline that God brings in our life because of sin. Fourth reason we suffer is because we're connected to someone involved in either reason two or reason three. We are connected to someone by marriage, 
are by maybe there are parents, maybe there are children, maybe there are business associates, maybe they're the president of the United States and he's making bad decisions. God is going to bring the consequences of those bad decisions to bear upon him. It impacts the whole nation. Maybe God is going to bring divine discipline upon the whole nation because of the decisions of the government and everybody in the nation suffers. We, we suffer because someone we're tied to is guilty of sin, and so we are going to either reap the consequences, uh, divine uh, 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 reason number two, or we're going to reap the divine discipline by association. And so we are we go through discipline by association. Now we don't have any personal responsibility in that. But nevertheless, we still go through the consequent suffering, and we have to utilize the same principles uh, of claiming promises and trusting in God to enable us to survive during those circumstances. And the fifth reason that we suffer is because we just live in the cosmic system. We live in a fallen world system. And so we're constantly going to be connected to people who are sinners. You may love your wife, you may love your parents, you may love your children, but they're corrupt little sinners, and they're going to make, at times, really bad, sinful decisions. And part of your responsibility and mine is to love them in spite of that. That's called grace orientation. But what makes it really difficult is when that person to whom we are tied makes a devastatingly bad decision, and we have to suffer the consequences for that. That really calls for spiritual maturity to trust in God and to forgive them and to move forward on the basis of the principles of God's Word. But we live in the cosmic system, and so things are going to go bad. The the prized possessions are going to rust, or they're going to grow weeds, or they're going to need to get painted, or they are going to burn down. But things in this world are all touched by the corruption of sin, and so there's always going to be suffering and adversity in life simply because we live in the world system. Now, these first five reasons are all related to the fallen nature of, of, of man. The next set of reasons that we give uh, are not necessarily connected to uh, uh, personal bad decisions of either our own or somebody else's, and we don't necessarily know the cause for these, and I'm going to wait and cover those next five reasons uh, next time. So let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time that we've had to study and reflect upon uh, upon these uh, causes for suffering and the promises that we have in Scripture that teach us to wait upon you, to have hope even in the midst of horrible circumstances, because we know that all things work together for good, even those that bring about intense suffering in our lives. We thank you for the examples of, of people like David, where we see their sins, their flaws, their faults. We see that they paid the consequences for their sins in terms of divine discipline. But even in the midst of that, we see your grace and sustenance for them, that they might be able to endure uh, the difficulties, endure the discipline, which brought glory to you and strengthened them spiritually and was used by you to bring about spiritual maturity in their lives. Help us to have a divine viewpoint, look at the suffering that we have in our life, trusting in you that that you are fully aware of the suffering and that you are using it as part of the, uh, the, the, the matrix of events in our lives that will bring about spiritual maturity to glorify you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.